Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. Well, 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 it's a Monday and we can expect more nonsense and fireworks in Washington because that's what they do. That is what they do. And I have to tell you, I've about had it all I can stand when it comes to being told that you need to sit down and take it. You know, that's why I probably love Donald Trump because he's willing to take some of the bows and arrows that I know are really aimed at you and me, get us to think differently, do differently, go in the house, put on a mask, don't let your kids go to school, you know, now we're finding out all of that stuff was wrong. We listened to people who didn't know the answers but felt compelled to pursue what they thought was the best path forward. Fauci. And sometimes I sit here and I think about how compliant we all were and how I made all those little yellow buttons that said, you must refuse to comply and I wore it for a while, and then I stopped wearing it. And I saw it on a lot of people for a while, and then they stopped wearing it. Because there comes a point in time where you get used to things being awful. And that's a, that's a real tragic place where I think America finds itself now. I look at some of these insane indictments that have been leveled against the former president, and all I can do is shake my head. You don't have to be a lawyer. And you don't even have to sit through uh, Levin, Life, Liberty, and Levin, although it was excellent the way they concisely described how out of bounds these most recent indictments were. They had Matthew Whitaker on, who was acting attorney general during the Trump administration, and they had on a federal prosecutor who really knew his stuff. And they went through the charges. And it's amazing to me how we've been saying almost all my adult life that you could get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich and now to have a former president of the United States be the ham sandwich, where they literally fabricate charges and then they tweak uh, some of the codes that are built into our legal system and they just go full steam ahead. But they don't have time to actually investigate whether or not Joseph Robinette Biden, the current president of the United States, is up to his ears in foreign, well, the least we could call them is entanglements, and maybe the most we could call them is he's been in the pocket of China and Russia and, and the Ukraine. I mean, we just throw money at the Ukraine without really paying attention to whether or not that money is being used appropriately by a guy who was a stand-up comic and is now the 
president. Look, I, I don't know that much about Zelensky, but come on. He's managing a war against a superpower because of the money and weaponry that we give him. That's a proxy war by any measure. And so again, there was a lot of buzz over the weekend over this interview in Tablet between David Samuels and David Garrow. You know, David Garrow wrote a biography of Barack Obama that's called Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. And I've always said, you know, Barack Obama is one of those perfect political stories. Everything fell into place. Everything was organ, you know, actually orchestrated for him to become the president of the United States. So if you look at David Garrow's book, and by the way, he happens to be a civil rights historian, won all kinds of prizes. Not that that you know, necessarily means he's good. They gave Pulitzer Prizes to the coverage of Russian collusion, which ended up being false. So, yeah, so much for Pulitzers and all the rest of it. But he specializes in excavating details that other people overlook. So people hate him. You know, the, the left can't stand him because he took apart this biography. And he talked to a number of people who Barack Obama had actually mentioned or referred to or even quoted in his book, Dreams of My Father. So I always said, when I read Dreams of My Father, it made me nervous because it basically described a man who rejected half of his history and embraced the other half and then adopted that as a theology or philosophy of life. The most explosive claims, though, in this tablet article were those that were made by the girlfriend that Barack Obama had back in the 1980s, this Sheila Miyoshi Jager. He described their breaking up as a big fight they had after they saw a play. And he said the fight was because of his own black consciousness against his girlfriend's white liberal universalism, which was for him the defining existential struggle. So David Garrett went and tracked her down. Now, I know in the book, Dreams of My Father, Barack Obama actually like made a composite girlfriend. He included a lot of different features of other girlfriends besides this uh, Jager. But she tells the story that their breakup wasn't after seeing a play. She said it was after they saw an exhibition in Chicago about Adolf Eichmann. And at, the, at just about that time, there was a scandal happening in Chicago over a black mayoral assistant named Steve Coakley who got fired for being an anti-Semitic. And, you know, Jager's Dutch grandfather was very uh, active during the Second World War in an underground network that sheltered Jewish kids from the Nazis. He and his wife himself sheltered a Jewish girl for three years, and their names are on the Yad Vashem Wall of Honor in the Garden of the Righteous. So this Sheila Jager told Gara that after they left the Eichmann exhibition, she had asked Barack Obama why so many prominent black people in Chicago were defending this uh, mayoral assistant Coakley, which led to a big fight, she said, during which time she challenged Barack on the question of black racism and blamed him for not having the courage to confront the racial divide between us. 
Now, Jaeger concluded that what happened between them wasn't so much over race as her perception of Barack Obama's lack of courage. She said it was that Obama has a problem with Jewish people. And that is because the Jews' survival as a group and their continuing insistence on Jewish historical particularity gets in the way of his governing belief that the supreme crime of history is the oppression of black people by white people. You know, ghettos were invented for Jews. Concentration camps, too. So how can Jews be privileged white people if they're clearly among history's victims? And if Jews aren't white people, then maybe a lot of other white people are also victims and therefore aren't white in the theological sense in which the term gets all this significance, right, in this progressive ideology. Maybe black people aren't always or primarily black. Maybe all this progressive race-based theology is a load of crap, which is why the Jews are always a problem and why you always see this anti-Semitic attitude, certainly the nation of Islam, it's a perfect example. And to some extent, you know, Barack Obama is a great example. This is the mindset of progressive people. And that's really scary when you think about it. So are we living through, I think Melanie Phillips wrote a great piece on, we're living through a third Barack Obama administration, really, for all intents and purposes. That's why America is in the condition it's in today. And that's why nobody cared about Gara's book when it was published in 2017. So all of a sudden, people are starting to think about this. You know, we got a president who's in cognitive decline, and that's the nicest way I can put the fact that the man is, like, losing it quickly. And the headline that Politico had was, Is Obama Ready to Reassert Himself? as if the ex-president hadn't been living in the middle of Washington this whole time and playing politics since the day he left office. Instead, in, actually in previous weeks, he, is a big, he plays a big part in this administration. All this uh, campaign against the First and the Second Amendments, those are Obama leftovers. So it's interesting. Gives me a lot to think about, a lot to talk about, certainly, but it doesn't make for a very sane and civil Washington, D.C. that can get things done. I don't know. I don't know how this all ends up, but I do know one thing. We have a Department of Justice that's so rogue at this point that nobody, nobody knows what's going on. There's absolute proof and evidence of corruption on the part of the Biden family, and it's being totally ignored. There's no question in my mind that the Department of Justice has two tracks. They got the track for the people they love and defend, like Joe Biden, and then they have the track for the people they hate and want to destroy, like Donald Trump. And guess which track you and I are on? Just saying, you know, I'm certainly not feeling like I could get justice. I'm certainly not confident Equal justice is even a possibility going forward. That's pretty, pretty scary. It's a pretty scary time in America. So one thing we were always kind of confident about, well, we got great law enforcement and the Department of Justice is looking out for the little guy. And I can't say that anymore. 
To me, the Department of Justice is a political tool of the Democrat Party right now. And it wasn't a political tool of the Republican Party when Donald Trump was there, uh, primarily because he don't think that way. He really doesn't think that way. But uh, you have to imagine that if he does win the presidency, and I still believe that that's not just a possibility, that's a probability, is he going to use this? This power that, that the Biden administration has taught the whole world is, is going to fly? You can do this? You can attack your opponents through legal channels and can make up stuff? Because if that's what the Trump administration plans on doing, then the whole world is definitely upside down. So I have like this longing for a return to the Trump administration and then this fear that the Trump administration will be nothing but, you know, a, a retribution, four years of retribution for everything they've done to conservatives and in particular to Donald Trump. That's no way to run a country. Anyway, let me take a break. Don't forget to download our app, the 850 WFTL app. That way you can hear the podcast, which I'm going to have to redo and get up as soon as possible. And you can also uh, get news updates and weather updates because we're in hurricane season, my friends. So you better know what's going on. I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Well, all these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAP Podcasts. So uh, certainly some of the stuff that they were talking about on Life, Liberty, and Levin, which, uh, thank God for Rumble, the, um, the judge, and they didn't know this when they did the show, I guess when the show was recorded, but the judge here in Florida, Aileen Cannon, who was appointed by Donald Trump, um, wanted to, first of all, she's rebuking Jack Smith, the federal prosecutor, big time. And she struck two of their filings. She wants an explanation of the legal propriety of using an out-of-district grand jury proceeding to continue to investigate and or to seek post-indictment hearings on matters pertinent to the instant indicted matter in this district. So in other words, he goes to a grand jury in Washington, which is particularly friendly to the Democrat Party. It's like 95% Democrats in D.C. who think they're on the fringe of becoming the 51st state, hopefully over, you know, over somebody's dead body, the entire Republican Party minority. But uh, she responded to the prosecutor who requested a hearing on uh, conflicts, potential conflicts of interest with the lawyer, Stanley Woodward, who's the lawyer for Walt Nauta, who's one of the uh, co-conspirators, I guess, is what Jack Smith is saying, a potential conflict exists because Mr. Woodward previously represented one witness and currently represents two other witnesses who the government may call to testify at the trial of his client, Nauta, 
prosecutors wrote in a court filing last week. The situation could leave Woodward in the position of cross-examining past or current clients, the prosecutors added. Norda's lawyers will need to respond to the motion for the hearing and address the existence of the grand jury by August 17th, according to the filing that uh, Judge Cannon wrote. So they got to file a response, like, quick. A, you know, it's just crazy how they shopped for that second grand jury out of this, you know, out of Florida. It's just insane. All of it is insane. And I think what you're going to find out is that there's a fighter being chased, and he's not going to give up. Donald Trump's not going to back down. You know, now he's going after Nancy Pelosi, who apparently, you know, had a very big part in all of this, the indictments. If you were, I read something in the intelligence that said if you were going to list the people who were most responsible for this new indictment, or the new couple of indictments, you'd have to say that there are a lot of people who deserve a lot of credit, if you want to give it, call it that. They should have voted to convict them in the impeachment trial. That was the place to do it, but they didn't. So the Speaker of the House wanted a congressional inquiry, and she had that select committee that she put together and then wouldn't accept the Republicans that McCarthy wanted to put on that committee. And now she's out there speaking to everybody who listened to her. I knew on January 6th that he committed a crime. What's going through this woman's head? She's bringing the, this is probably the most important criminal prosecution in the history of the United States. And, you know, during this, his administration, during Trump's administration, she was one of his most persistent antagonists. And they were not friendly at all. She went toe-to-toe with him in the Oval Office, and it didn't go well on either side. She's the one who authorized the third ever impeachment of an American president. So let me, you know, let me ask you this question. Do you think it was accidental that she refused to allow the National Guard to be called in? Now we're hearing this interview that got Tucker fired for all intents and purposes, right? Where he talked to the police chief at the time of the D.C. police, and he says, well, wait a second. You know, I was not told that there was a potential for this I was not told that there would be federal agents out there. And then when we called for help, we didn't get it because of the Speaker of the House. She needed that to unfold the way it unfolded so that she could make the him, you know, make Donald Trump criminally culpable and everybody around him. The committee's members and the staff were coming up with all this evidence and in the meantime, the DOJ is doing the same thing. And again, the DOJ is going after everybody who stormed the Capitol, and she's still going after Donald Trump. He's out of office. Well, we got your attention, didn't we? I mean, she is a sick puppy, and Donald Trump is, you know, out there talking about it. And I don't blame him one bit. You know, he has been put through the mill. He's taunting everybody, the judge, the prosecutor, the witnesses, talking about Mike Pence, who turned to the, to the dark side. 
Unfortunately for the world, he's speaking the language of a lot of people. Even if he's innocent of all the charges, which I believe he is, I don't think he incited any kind of uh, insurrection. He was told by this judge not to go on social media and not to start attacking everybody, and he said, you can kiss my tuchus. And and that's it. I don't know. I really don't know. Is he setting up like a, a particular kind of defense? I don't know. But this is the most interesting time that I can imagine being a radio talk show host. The only other time that was as interesting was during Bill Clinton's administration with the Drudge Report breaking the Monica Lewinsky story. That was a very interesting time to be on talk radio. I would not call 9-11 an interesting time. It was a very, very tough time. Covering that story was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. First and foremost, we were in the dark about a lot of it. You know, I worked with uh, Jack Cole at the time, and he was the first person I ever heard mention Osama bin Laden's name. So when those planes were flying into the building and into the Pentagon and into a field in Pennsylvania, I had no idea that the attack had been so carefully orchestrated by this Al-Qaeda. I knew there was such a thing, but covering that story was just so traumatic for me. After, new, after all, even if I don't like it, New York City is my hometown. I was born and raised there. Lived there all my childhood, for the most part. And I just took it very personally. Everybody did. At the time, I was still doing some of the financial broadcasting, and the guys that I talked to on a regular basis were in that building when it was struck. And I think about them all the time. And I think about all the other people. I think about people who were just so frightened and so uh, without any resources, you know, jumping out of windows. So that was not an interesting time to be on the air. It was a trauma. And I think a lot of us have PTSD from that. I have a little PTSD from the Oklahoma City bombing, to be honest, because I was on the air when the news came across, and I like just couldn't believe that this was happening. And it's very difficult to report on it when you're a, a personality like me who who's an anal an analyst. You know, just straight up reporting becomes very difficult. The information's being shot at you real rapid pace, and I just you know had emotional reactions to it all. This is an interesting time. We've got Elon Musk, who's now, you know, trying to figure out how to get this fight between him and Mark Zuckerberg to really happen, because it would be the biggest thing ever. Wouldn't you pay on pay-per-view if you could watch Musk and Zuckerberg go at it? By the way, Elon Musk, nobody knows about what he's done in his life other than his accomplishments. But apparently he's been doing judo a long time. And I know that uh, Zuckerberg has been working out and building himself up and doing some sort of martial arts. So I think it would be fascinating, first and foremost, because they're both brilliant. And I don't think most of the people we see in these uh, ultimate fighting things 
I don't know that any of them are like super brilliant. <laughs> I'm not sure. And certainly after you knock your head against the ground enough, your super brilliance is probably minimal. But it'd be interesting. And one last thing in this segment that I'm just going to throw away. I don't want to talk about it because I just, I literally, I literally despise this uh, Megan Rapinoe. But her missing that final kick during the Women's World Cup and the American team, the U.S. team being knocked out in round of 16, losing to Sweden because she missed a penalty shootout as she's going into retirement. I must admit, it made me okay. I, I you know, I, I was okay. I thought what goes around comes around. Anyway, let me take a quick break. I will be right back. So there was an article on Free Press. I don't know what I would do without Free Press. I think Barry uh, has done a tremendous service, Barry Weiss, to the community because she brings on these writers who have an incredible capacity for telling the truth. And they've been basically all mainstream newspapers and media. So they found a home on the free press, which is Barry Weiss's uh, Substack, and that it's worth a subscription. By the way, I'm not, you know, shilling for her, but I, I get so much information from there. It's amazing. Uh, her and Melanie Phillips really just tell the stories that nobody else wants to talk about. You know, whether it's Israel with Melanie Phillips or it's uh, the truth about everything on Barry Weiss's. And I don't agree with Barry Weiss on very much. She's a, she's very much a liberal. But she's a truth teller. And right now, if you're a truth teller, you're attacking a lot of liberals because they're liars. Like this, uh, there's an article by David Zweig on Free Press about Anthony Fauci. You know, everybody was thinking that Anthony Fauci was going away into the quiet, which is not true. And what we need to do is look at what his incredible misdeeds were during the onset of this coronavirus plague. There's nothing else you could call it but a plague, a worldwide plague. And back in April of 2020, when most of us were still in some kind of lockdown, and all we were reading were headlines about hospitals that had bodies in the morgue, trucks lined up, all this really scary stuff. And it was at the end of a press conference back in April when Anthony Fauci was asked, was there a possibility that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan, China. And he steps up to the microphone and, you know, it's all over the internet if you want to see it. And Fauci said very confidently that there was a study and a group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists. Now remember, back in this day, most of us didn't know what a virologist was, never mind an evolutionary virologist, okay? And he said this group had looked at the sequences there and the sequences in bats as they evolve and the mutations that it would take to get where it is now is totally consistent with the jump of a species from an animal to a human. In other words, he dispelled any discussion and certainly any confirmation that this virus had been created in a laboratory and that therefore... We should stop even looking that way. And that set the template 
for everything that we heard for the next three years from Anthony Fauci. And yes, I know it was during the Trump administration. And Trump doesn't get a complete pass on this. We were all freaked out. And he was too. But the evasion, the lying, the misdirection about what was going on and how he was connected to the very high-risk virology research that was going on in Wuhan. Very lax security. And Fauci was the face of the public health community for the whole time during the crisis, right? Pushing the evidence that strong indications the virus was just a tragic, natural occurrence. Over and over again, he said that an epidemic that started in Wuhan was unlikely to have been the result of an escape from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He had an incentive, and we know that now, because that institute was known for doing very high-risk research, virology research. They were manipulating coronaviruses. And Dr. Fauci, who was the head of the uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for like 40 years, had given them money. He was funding the research there. So, of course, when he dismisses the theory of the lab leak and then gets really condescending towards anybody who even wants to talk about it, we got a narrative about how that pandemic started directly from him. And the media totally fell for it. And, and when the Biden White House said, look, you got to, said to the social media platforms, Zuckerberg and you know Google, all of them, he said, you have to stifle any discussion about the origins of this virus. Ah, but then what happened? A whole bunch of emails and other documents were released by the U.S. House Select Subcommittee, I guess it is, on the coronavirus pandemic. And there's tons of evidence in there that Fauci and some other officials had a tremendous amount of involvement with the scientists and with the journalists, and they quashed the lab leak theory. They literally quashed it. You had highly qualified authors of the paper that Fauci had asserted in April 2020 likely disproved the lab leak. That was the proximal origin paper. You know, I had to go digging in my files to see what was happening back then. Thank God I'm a compulsive note taker and article clipper. Although now you just put it in a folder on your computer. It's a lot easier than when I had all those articles clipped in the manila folders. I'll tell you that. But there was extensive discussion by the officials who were telling us no chance this was a lab leak about how this was a lab leak. So they published one thing, told you and me one thing, and they were thinking something else. Just months before a paper was published in March, one of the paper's authors wrote a Slack message to his colleague saying, the lab escape version of this is so friggin' likely to have happened because they were already doing this type of work and the molecular data is fully consistent with that scenario. Oh, okay. Another of the co-authors writing on Slack said it's not crackpot to suggest this could have happened, given the gain-of-function research we know is happening. Another author, Ian Lipkin, wrote on February 11th that there was the possibility of inadvertent release at the Institute in Wuhan. Given the scale of bat 
COVID virus research pursued there and the site of emergence of first human cases, we have a nightmare of circumstantial evidence to assess. So in other words, just what I was saying, just what Alex Berenson was saying, just what Elon Musk was saying, just what so many people were saying, this looks pretty sketchy. This virus looks man-made, or certainly there's a possibility it was man-made, and it could have been released by accident, or it could have been released on purpose. So this is what they were discussing behind the scenes while they're telling you and me, no chance, no chance. Behind the scenes, they're all going, wow, pretty good possibility there. And, and you know, of course, Fauci objected to the paper. He objects to the documents being released. And he and Francis Collins, who was then the head of the NIH, which oversees the NIAID, which is what Fauci headed, they took part in a conference call with a bunch of scientists, including several of the authors that I just cited, prompting them to begin work on what would ultimately be that proximal origin paper, which I have right here in front of me. The virologists were told this is the position we're taking. And, and this is the position everybody took. Advice and leadership as we have been working through the SARS-CoV-2 origins paper. Nice job on the paper. Fauci and Collins were so involved with the paper that internal communications between the five authors they referred to as the Bethesda boys, which is a reference to where the headquarters are of NIH, they're in Bethesda, Maryland, at the time of that paper's drafting, which went on from about February through March, when it was accepted by the Journal of Nature Medicine, they had an $8.9 million grant under review by Fauci. Of course, the grant was approved in May. We may never learn how the pandemic began, considering that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is funded by your dollars, your taxpayer dollars, and they've deleted all the data about the virus and we know that the Chinese Communist Party ain't going to give it up. But instead of offering even-handed leadership that would have encouraged scientists to present some alternate, you know, some alternative process, you know, could it have been a leak or any other issues? They got demonized. Fauci punished them. And if you want to understand why there's been such a collapse of trust in our public health leaders, this is a good place. This story is a good place to understand it. Very controversial. Fauci been a vocal advocate for this type of research, gain-of-function research for a, at least a decade. So what, what on earth was actually going on and why were we being lied to? When Senator Rand Paul was questioning Fauci in that congressional hearing about his funding of this research and its connection to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Fauci said gain-of-function is a very nebulous term. You're defining a way, gain of function. That's what you're doing. I'm telling you, there is so much rot and stink in our bureaucratic agencies and, and, and this insane deep state, because it really is a deep state, that we're being lied to about everything. You know, my podcast that'll be coming out later in the week or maybe this early in the week, I'm not sure. I talk about autism. Very similar to the podcast I did about Alzheimer's. 
Like we're being told a story that doesn't reflect what's really going on in this country and actually around the world. We just get sold bills of goods by the media who is being sold a bill of goods by whatever agencies involved, whether it's NIH or NIMH. Remind me of that movie, The Secret of Nim. Remember that with the little mouse? Uh, anyway, I got to take a break. I do want you to remember coming up right after me is Eric Erickson. And then don't forget, in the morning, we'll begin again with the one and only South Florida Morning Show with Jen and Bill. And then, of course, uh, 9 o'clock, we have the uh, elusive, I don't know, this guy is everywhere, Brian Kilmeade. And then at noon, my man, Dan Bongino. So stay right where you are. I've got one segment left. So a lot of strange things, you know, uh, for me, I, I'm making a trip out to San Francisco soon to see my grandsons and my daughter. And I follow the San Francisco news, not just because they are there, but because it's fascinating how it's an experiment. The whole state of California is a giant experiment in my book, and it's failing. But I'm looking at how California has now spent more than $20 billion to put up shelters, housing for the homeless since the beginning of COVID, since 2020. And yet, all you see are tents. The progressives who put this plan together are learning that you can build as many shelters and you can make them as nice as you want, but that doesn't mean that the homeless are going to use them. They released some data last week. 55% of homeless individuals rejected shelter when it was offered to them. So one out of every two people who were offered shelter didn't want it. And then they had this big fire which destroyed this housing complex that they were building. You know, sounds like arson to me. All the residents in the area have complained to the city about all the fires that get started around these homeless encampments. So they asked Mayor London Breed. Well, actually, she tweeted on X. She said, we can't force people to accept or stay in shelters, and we're unable to prevent people from setting up an encampment in an area that was just cleaned. This is the situation we are in. That's what the mayor, London Breed, tweeted. And she's right, because San Francisco is under a federal injunction that bars officials like her from even enforcing laws against camping or sleeping in public spaces as long as its homeless population exceeds available shelter beds, which the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment creates the right to be a vagrant. <laughs> I, the way they twist the law is so disgusting to me. She said, many homeless people prefer to live on the streets where they can freely use drugs. People are coming here for so many different reasons, including the ease of access to getting these drugs. That's what the mayor says. Again, a liberal Democrat mayor whose city is in disaster zone. Since 2016, the homeless budget has ballooned to $672 million. That's almost... Well, it's more than twice of what it was. The, the number of homeless in shelters is up. 
but not substantially, not for $20 billion worth of spending. So now there's a, a ballot measure that Salesforce CEO Benioff is, uh, he wants to increase the business taxes in San Francisco by some $300 million a year to build more homeless housing. And guess what? You do that and you give the businesses another incentive on top of all the crime and shoplifting that's going on to move jobs out of the city. Who wants to pay that? You In Florida, in, in California, you have a state income tax. Then you have city income tax. If you live in LA or you live in San Francisco, you have your federal income tax. You have your property taxes. These people are taxed beyond anything I can ma imagine. My children I'm talking about. And because they are in industries where they can make money, lots of money in California, they stay. But most people can't. So you get a homeless epidemic, a lot of it because of drug addiction and mental illness. But hey, if you're not going to prosecute drug crimes, which they're not, Governor Newsom and the other progressives decriminalized drug use and shoplifting, and localities can't use the threat of jail to induce addicts to receive treatment. So they want you more of your tax money. How is that? Is that not like the craziest thing? And I got kids who live there. They're smart. I don't know what's wrong with them. Anyway, that does it for me today. I thank you for your time this time until next time. And my plan is to be back here in front of this microphone at three o'clock tomorrow, if it be his will and he delays his coming. What lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. And then as always, may God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow at three. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.